Good morning. It's good to be here as a family. Uh, We're diving into a text that is very much in process already, so we're going to back up and start earlier to catch some of those threads that are woven in to help us see how deeply connected Genesis 8 is to what has come before it and how it will ultimately connect to what comes after it. So we're going all the way back. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the word for spirit, ruach, will also show up in Genesis 8 as the wind that blows over the face of the earth. The word for spirit and wind, it also it appeared in Genesis 1-1. It appeared in Genesis 3 when God walked with the man and woman in the cool, the ruach, of the day. It appeared again in Genesis 6-3 when God declared, My spirit, ruach, shall not abide in man forever. Then it appeared in Genesis 6:17, 7:15, and 7:22 when God declared the breath of life in the beings he was going to destroy. Uh, this repetition, it's not as obvious to us in English, but in Hebrew, that repeated word, that identical word, would have leapt out at the original audience. Our text today starts with this same spirit that hovered over the waters. And that animated living beings now once again coming over the earth, and this time blowing the waters away. In a striking parallel that would have been familiar to the children of Israel, that original audience, we see in Exodus 14, when the Israelites are fleeing from Pharaoh, and they find themselves trapped by the Red Sea with the Egyptian army closing in behind them, it says in verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind, all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That wind in the strong east wind, that's our same word, ruach, the spirit, the wind, again, moving water. In Genesis 8, when the wind kicked up and the water began to recede, did Noah suspect it was the spirit? He didn't know about the Red Sea, of course, but did he know about that beautiful link between the spirit and the wind? I wonder if he might have, because what do we know about Noah? In Genesis 6-9, we're told Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah knew God. Noah had faith in God. Noah was not perfect. But he knew who God was and he trusted him. It tells us in Genesis 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah believed God existed. But more than that, Noah had faith in God. He drew near to God. Noah's righteousness is fruit of his faith in God. In Genesis 6, verses 13 through 21, God spoke to Noah. which That alone is worth pausing. God spoke to Noah. He gave Noah incredibly detailed directions about his intention to destroy the earth, and all the living creatures. 
God gave incredibly detailed directions about how to build an ark and exactly who and what to put in it. And in Genesis 6.22, we're told, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God spoke. Noah obeyed completely. Then in Genesis 7, verses 1 through 4, God spoke again. He told Noah to enter the ark and that in seven days the rain would begin and it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights. What was Noah's response? Genesis 7, 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. God spoke. Noah obeyed completely. Noah acted on his faith in God. And now it gets more interesting. Right? God said it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it did. But look at the last verse of our text from last week. Genesis 7, verse 24. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That's different. Um, Did God mention that to Noah? When Noah heard 40 days and 40 nights of rain, was he expecting the waters to prevail, to absolutely dominate and cover the earth for 150 days? We may know from personal experience or watching the news, even just recently in Europe and Asia in the last two weeks, um, that when a flood happens, the waters, the peak flood stage, that comes after the rain stops. We have context for the waters continuing to rise after the rain stops. But did Noah? And then it's just this casual mention. Waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Then we get our text today. Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The first four words in this chapter make me squirm. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered, as in God had forgotten. He was unaware. What's what's happening here? What's happening is beautiful. I want to suggest there are at least, probably more than, but at least two types of remembering. One is the one we're most familiar with, the one we do a lot. We forget and we suddenly remember. We see the empty spot in the fridge and remember, supposed to buy milk. We see our backpack and remember, oh, we did have homework. This kind of forgetting and remembering, we do it all the time with a heavy emphasis on forgetting. But there's another kind of remembering. There's the unable to forget remembering. Unable to forget. Uh, When I was seven, my parents bought a new house. I was not thrilled with the idea of moving. I have never been a fan of change. A few days before we were supposed to move, I got on my bike, I rode to the driveway of the house next door, and I looked at the neighborhood and I memorized what it looked like. Then I rode to the next house, did the same thing. Rode to the third house, did the same thing. And then I actually said out loud, I will never forget this. I was seven. Um, Then I rode the three houses back, because that's about as far as I was allowed to go by myself. I don't know why I did that, but guess what? I have never forgotten. I remember. I have always remembered. Sometimes it's really little things that we remember in an unable to forget way. Sometimes it's really big things that we remember. Where we were when 9-11 happened. What it felt like to hear a loved one had died unexpectedly. What it felt like to hear a baby that we have been waiting for has been born. Unable 
to forget remembering. We could take those first four words of Genesis 8-1, but God remembered Noah, and we could restate them as, but God never forgot Noah. God never forgot Noah. A few Bible translations like the CEV, the Contemporary English Version, they even translate it as, God did not forget about Noah and the animals with him in the boat. God never forgot Noah. Noah, the righteous man who walked with God, Noah, the man of faith who did all that God commanded him to do, he was never forgotten. God always remembered Noah. Genesis 8, 1 through 5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. God never forgot Noah and everyone and everything in the ark. A wind, his spirit, Ruach, blew over the earth and the waters subsided. But it did not happen quickly. Remember, God told Noah 40 days of rain, yet the water prevailed for 150 days. Now God blows the water away and it takes another 150 days for the water to subside. In other words, God is in full control and God is choosing to act within time. He could have miraculously and instantaneously dried the earth like he did in Exodus 14 for the Israelites. And we'll see in the New Testament that Jesus has full control of nature. Remember the story? Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee at night. Mark 4, beginning in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. God could have dealt with the flood water around Noah miraculously. He did not choose to do that. He chose to let the waters recede naturally and slowly in real time. But what was happening in the ark? Do you think they were expecting 40 days of rain to lead to month after month after month of confinement in the ark? As the days wore on, Did they have any idea when they would get out? On the 17th day of the seventh month, when the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, did they think, finally, this is almost over? Every day after that, were they wondering, is this the day we get to disembark? Yet more than two months later, the water had only receded enough to expose the mountaintops. Some of us have felt isolated or restricted during the pandemic. For months, we couldn't see people or go places the way we usually did. Many of us got antsy and lonely, right? But most of us could still go outside, take a walk, chat with a neighbor, 
FaceTime with relatives we couldn't be with in person. We can relate a little bit, just a little bit, to the lack of knowing that, how long that time of waiting and abnormal would last. But we cannot relate to the total confinement and isolation Noah and his family experienced. They were literally the last eight people alive on earth. And as desperately as they may have longed to get out of the ark, they were not waiting for reunions with family and friends, with coworkers and classmates. They were waiting for an unknown duration that was lasting far longer than they probably anticipated. But unlike us, who may have lost loved ones during a pandemic, I have. Unlike us, Noah and his family, they lost everyone. Right? Noah's daughters-in-law. They lost everyone but their husbands and in-laws. Remember, these were arranged marriages. They weren't necessarily in the boat by choice or for love, right? Noah's sons no doubt lost friends and cousins, aunts and uncles. Noah's wife lost her community. Were they grieving on the ark? Their people would not be there to greet them when they got off. The place they lived would undoubtedly look very different after the devastation of flooding. After just 24 hours of rain in Europe a couple weeks ago, people commented on the absolute change to the landscape, the unrecognizability in some areas. How much more after this biblical flood? The God Noah had faith in was protecting them, but the rest of their world was being destroyed. What were they thinking and feeling on the ark? What did they do in their waiting? What do we do in our waiting? Many of us have been or are still waiting. We're waiting for different doors to open than Noah's family, but we are waiting for clarity on staying or going, on education choices, on job changes, on diagnoses, on fertility news, on legal proceedings, on estranged loved ones. What do we do in our waiting. Genesis 8, 6 through 12. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. After all this waiting, Noah sends out a raven. Ravens are incredibly smart birds. Ravens are also unclean. While Noah's family did not have the law that God would give through Moses, it seems they were already, uh, there was already some concept of clean and unclean. In Genesis 7-2, God explicitly told Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals with him into the ark. Eventually, in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, ravens will be listed as unclean birds. Noah sent out a raven. It could not find dry ground. Then Noah sent a dove, first an unclean raven, now a clean dove. Doves are capable of extremely long and fast flight, despite how they might look. Uh, If no one knew that, then when she returned, having found no place to perch and rest, 
he would have known the water was still prolific. And Noah waits longer, another week. What do you think they did in their waiting? What do we do in our waiting? Then Noah sends the dove again, and she returns with an olive leaf. Trees are alive and leafing. If I were Noah, I'd have been on my way out of that ark right then. It has been so, so long. But he waits another week. He sends another dove, and she doesn't come back. She's found a habitable, habitable environment, so it's time, right? Genesis 8, 13 and 14. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Verse 13, it anchors us in time. Right? Noah got in the ark in the 600th year of his life on the 17th day of the second month. Now it's the first day of the first month of his 601st year. Noah and his family have been in the ark for 10 and a half months. Remember, God said 40 days and 40 nights of rain. But now it's been 10 and a half months, and the earth is finally dry enough for a bird to find a place to live. But verse 14, it tells us that almost two months later, they're still on the ark. They haven't left yet. Why? The waters are gone. The ground is dry. But Noah is a man of faith. We noticed earlier that God spoke and Noah obeyed completely. In verse 13, the ground looked ready. It appeared to be dry, but Noah waited. Noah trusted God's timing and God's voice more than he trusted his own eyes. Noah trusted God more than he trusted his own perception. Noah saw dry ground, but he trusted that God told him when to get in the ark and God would tell him when to get out of the ark. God spoke. Noah obeyed completely. We saw that before the flood. Now here we are more than a year after God spoke to get into the ark. And though we, the readers, we're told in Genesis 8-1, God remembered Noah. God never forgot Noah. It appears that God has not spoken to Noah. According to the text, God last spoke in Genesis 7, verses 1 through 4, when he told Noah to get ready because the rains were coming in seven days and would last for 40 days. Right? Noah obeyed completely. And according to the text, God has been silent ever since. We know God never forgot Noah, but God was silent. God's silence was not displeasure. It was simply silence. Sometimes God is silent. What do we do in God's silence? Noah waited. Noah, who walked by faith with God, appears to have endured more than a year of God's silence. Now, maybe God spoke and it wasn't recorded. But again, it appears in the text that God was silent for more than a year. And what was happening during that time? All living creatures, human and otherwise, were killed in a flood. For many, many months, the earth was covered in water. Noah was stuck in a boat with the only other seven living people on earth who had also lost everyone and everything, and God was silent. God was silent. Noah waited. 
God never forgot Noah, but it doesn't tell us if God told Noah that. It appears that Noah waited in God's silence. And when the ground was dry, did Noah, in the midst of God's silence, put his trust in what he could see? No. He saw the dry ground, he knew the dove had found a home, and he waited for God to speak. For two months, when his senses and probably his family were telling him the ground was dry, Noah waited for God to speak. And he didn't know he would be waiting for two months. He was waiting as long as it took because he trusted that the God who spoke and sent him into the ark would speak and send him out of it. Genesis 8, beginning in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. After more than a year of silence, God speaks. He sends Noah out of the ark. He gives directions to empty the ark. He repeats his original charge from Genesis 1.22 for the birds and animals to be fruitful and multiply. Does God praise Noah? Does he explain his silence? Does he give Noah words of affirmation for his faith and trust? No. God tells him to bring out the people and animals so the animals can begin multiplying on the earth. If you're Noah, what are you thinking? That year plus of silence may have been proportionally less of Noah's very long life than it would be in ours, but every day was just as long as each day is for us. After a year of silence, I'm sure Noah was relieved to hear they could get off the ark. But wouldn't he expect a little more? Yet once again, God speaks, Noah obeys completely. In verse 18, the people come out. In verse 19, the animals come out, which is interesting. People didn't drive the animals out. They must have been eager to get out too, right? And then what? Genesis 8, 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God speaks, Noah obeys completely, and Noah worships. I might have come off with a laundry list of questions for God, or at least a lot of laundry. I might want to take a nice, long walk and smell something besides cooped-up animals and people. I can think of a lot of things I would want to do with my newfound freedom from the ark and my traveling companions. Not Noah. He worships. He builds an altar. This is the first mention of an altar in the Bible. Perhaps people had already been building them. We know people had been calling on the name of the Lord since at least Enosh's day, according to Genesis 4.26. Maybe they used altars. It's not stated. But here we see Noah's response to God remembering him, to God never forgetting him, is that his first acts are to obey and worship. Is worship my first response to God's provision? Is it yours? When God speaks, when you know what he wants from you, even without hearing an audible voice, is your immediate response to obey and then to worship?
Noah's was. And Noah walked with God. Noah was remembered. He's still remembered for his faith. God spoke. Noah obeyed completely. And Noah worshipped. Notice God did not command worship. Noah's act of worship was his free choice in response to God's act of saving him. Noah, uh, worship is more than singing. We know this, hopefully. Worship is offering something of value to God. It's ascribing worth through our words and actions to God for who he is and what he's done. Noah could have come out angry. God set a 40-day flood and they've been in that boat for more than a year. The life they left behind has been washed away. God has been silent. And when he finally spoke, he didn't even give Noah an attaboy for being patient and obedient. He just gave him a logistical command about exiting the boat. But Noah did not come out angry or self-righteous or proud or bitter. Noah came out and worshipped. Noah built an altar and offered burnt offerings. Noah came out knowing who God was and what he had done. As we continue to emerge from a pandemic, how are you coming out? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Are you worshiping? The flood cost Noah something. The last year has probably cost you something. Noah worshiped. What about us? What can you offer through words or actions to the God who has saved you? Granted, you do not have the dramatic story of rescue in an ark that Noah had. But if you have recognized your own failings, if you have recognized that you fit right in with the description in Genesis 6, that every intention of your heart is only evil continually, and if that recognition of your sinfulness has led you to accept that you cannot make right the wrong you've done, then hopefully you've also recognized there is only one who can save you. That one is Jesus. Jesus took on the totality of your sin and my sin when he died on the cross. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he did so offering each of us a way to accept his saving power to make us right with God. Through him, we can step into a life of freedom, following and obeying God. We may not worship the God who saves us by building an altar and burning clean animals and birds on it. I don't actually recommend that. Right? We don't do that as Noah did, but we each can worship. What can you offer through words or actions to the God who saves you? Look back at Genesis 8. What is God's response to Noah's worship? The beginning of verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. God smelled the pleasing aroma. That sensory detail is interesting. Right? Presumably, God also saw what Noah was doing. I assume God heard the cacophony of the process of disembarking and the sound of those animals being sacrificed. But it's the pleasing aroma that gets mentioned. Many centuries later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16 in the NIV, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? If you are a follower of Jesus, then your life is an offering. Your life is the pleasing aroma of Jesus to everyone around you. 
to the others who follow Jesus, it's a life-giving aroma. Jesus smells like life. To those who aren't following Jesus, it's an aroma of death. What did the aroma of Noah's offering do? Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. When God smelled Noah's worship, he made a pronouncement. But notice, these are not words spoken to Noah. This is God's internal monologue, though he will repeat and elaborate on it to Noah in chapter 9, which we'll look at next week. But here, in his heart, God commits to never again destroy the earth and the created beings on it because of humanity's sinfulness. He doesn't change people. He reiterates that people's hearts will still be evil. So history is bound to repeat itself with the spread of evil similar to what it was like before the flood. We know that. But God won't respond by annihilating the world. God will choose instead to offer salvation, not through the destruction of another flood, but eventually through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a salvation that won't Sorry, and it's a salvation that won't just bring one family through devastation. It will be available to each and every person who lives. And to each person who puts their trust in Jesus, we know that we follow the same God Noah walked with. The same God who remembered, who never forgot Noah, will also remember and never forget us. The same God who spoke and Noah obeyed completely still speaks through his word and his spirit, and we can choose to obey him. And the same God who was silent without being displeased may still be silent when we long for a word from him. The same God who was, sorry, yet we can remain faithful. We can be obedient. We can follow Noah's example and not trust our own senses and our own perceptions, but trust that God will speak when the time is right. And when he does, may we, like Noah, respond in obedience and spontaneous worship. May our lives indeed give off the pleasing aroma of Jesus to everyone around us. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all our worship. Thank you for being the God who never loses track of us, who never forgets, who always remembers. Teach us to listen to your voice and to trust you and not our perceptions, even when the waits and the silences seem long. You and you alone are always worth waiting for, always worth obeying, always worth worshiping. May we do so. Amen.